Thanks, Mark. Hey, I'm Ben, one of the pastors here at EV. Uh, privileged to open up Amos 4 together tonight. Let's pray that God would meet us by his word as we open it up. Father God, thank you so much that you are the, the revealer, the one who shows us your thoughts, that you are the one who creates the dawn out of the darkness, the one who strides across the earth. We're so thankful that we get to meet you in your word tonight. We pray that you would help us to hear what you have to say to us and have hearts ready to take it in and ready to um, change and grow in our trust and love of you. Amen. When I was 18, or around that point, I bought my first car. Uh, it was about $2,000, and I saved up through working after school, night shift, stacking shelves, and I bought this Hyundai Lantra. Uh, and it was a bomb, right? This was not a nice car. It was all I could afford, but it had like kind of bald tires, and it burnt oil, and so every kind of week I had to top the oil up. And I used to, I, when we would be going somewhere that was kind of a decent distance, I would pray, I would be like, oh God, please help me to get there safely, or just get there at all, and the car wouldn't, wouldn't break down. And it was, it was a car that made me turn and trust God in that moment. Uh, earlier this year, we moved to New Zealand, and we thought, okay, we're going to get a new car, right? And so we went for the old classic faithful Toyota. You can't go wrong with a Toyota. And so we bought this Toyota Wish, and it was a bit more new, a bit more reliable, well-serviced, looked after, trustworthy. It was a great car. But do you know what? I don't think I've once prayed since I landed in New Zealand that God would help me get somewhere safely. What, what's going on for me there? It was that the old car made me realize how dependent I was on God, but something about the new car took that away, and I was just kind of, I just, you just expect to get there safely, right? Like, you know, you know like I, just, I just found myself uh, distracted or perhaps with this false sense of security uh, because I had this nice new car. Now, just earlier this week, the car actually broke, and the alternator broke in the car, and it left Soph stranded on the edge of the motorway with, like, three crying kids in the car. Uh, it made me realize the kind of folly of uh, trusting that the car, just because it was new, that it wouldn't break, and forgetting God in the midst of all of that. See, the nicer car actually caused me to be less dependent on God. Our stuff does that, doesn't it? We, we think about that line in the Lord's Prayer, give us today our daily bread, we find it kind of hard to pray that line because for most of us, we've never had to wonder about where our next meal is going to come from. And, and so we kind of pray and we're like, yeah, God, we trust you. But really, we've got like, you know, spaghetti in the fridge and the takeout shop down the road. And you, you, we don't have to worry in that sense. It, it's, this is the reality that Israel are experiencing in the 8th century B.C., They've had military and economic success like never before. They're the top dog. They've kind of conquered all the nations around them. And in their success, they've totally forgotten to keep God at the center. Yes, they'll have him still, but they will have other gods, and they don't really want to listen to God, and they've become proud and self-reliant on what they have, and they've forgotten about God. And, and the problem with Amos is they don't listen because they don't... Sorry, the problem with Israel is they don't listen because they don't think they need God. And so God sends Amos to, to warn them of what's going to happen if they keep not listening to what he has to say. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 4 today, God's warning message. We're going to kind of work through the passage together and ask a few questions about what does it look like for us today. So have a Bible open. We're going to get into it. Chapter 4, verse 1. The first thing we see is that Israel failed to hear God's warning and listen to him with how they use their wealth. It's the first thing. Chapter 4, verse 1. 
says, Amos says, Listen to this message, you cows of Bashan, who are on the hill of Samaria, women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to their husbands, Bring us something to drink. Now, I don't know how advisable it is to call women cows. I, I don't think it goes down too well. But Amos is trying to make a point here. See, Bashan is like this really fertile region, just kind of the east of the Jordan River, if you think Israel and the Jordan, and it's just east of that. And it had like the most lush grass. So it's kind of like uh, the Wagyu beef region of the uh, Israel area. And, and so what Amos is saying is, uh, you have the cream of the crop. You have all the best blessings and prosperity and wealth that you could have, you Wagyu beef cows. (laughs) The point is that he's given them all this wealth and success, but what have they done with it? They've become callous and hard. You can picture them in verse 1 there. You know, the modern-day equivalent would be like lounging around on a deck chair by the pool, sipping a pina colada, and just kind of like ordering everyone around without a care for anyone else, mistreating the servants that they have. Uh, you know, not a very nice people. And not only do they take advantage of the poor, they're actively trying to do things to oppress the poor around them. That's what we see in verse 1. See, they failed to listen to God with how they should have used their wealth. God's given Israel clear instructions to use their wealth to care for the poor and the vulnerable around them, but they failed to do that. And so Amos warns them what the Lord is going to do in verse 2. He says, The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, Look, the days are coming when you'll be taken away with hooks, every last one of you with fish hooks. You will go through breaches in the wall, each woman straight ahead, and you will be driven along towards Harmon. This is the Lord's declaration. See, Amos is clear, you have failed to listen to God. I've warned you time and time again, and judgment is coming. And we know from history that that judgment did come. Assyria, a nation to the kind of northeast of Israel, uh, God raised them up, and they grew really powerful and came through and just completely wiped out Israel. After this point, Israel don't exist anymore. You might wonder why there's kind of two names for God's people today. Well, there's Israel, but there's also, um, they're called Jews or Jewish people. That's because Israel doesn't exist after that point, and only the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, are called Judah or Jewish, and that's where the kind of that name comes from, because the northern ten tribes have been wiped out by Assyria just 30 years after this moment in history. And Assyria were a particularly brutal nation. I kind of like learning about history, but you read about the Assyrians, and it's kind of like makes you wince kind of stuff. That they were brutal, and their foreign policy was to torture their captives in order that they would be so scared of ever doing anything to rebel against Assyria that every nation around knew not to mess with Assyria. Here's a, a picture. This is taken off a wood carving, uh, and you can see kind of the two key tortures that Assyrians like to do. They like to uh, gouge eyes out. And the other thing that they would do is they'd get a, um, a thick metal ring and they'd shove it like into the jaws of the captives and they'd lock it in place and they'd run a chain through it so that all the prisoners were like kept in this line with this um, thick ring through their jaw. And, and that's what Amos is kind of referring to here. You'll be taken away with fish hooks. This was a common practice for the Assyrians back then when they um, captured other nations. See, they failed to listen to God with their wealth, and instead of using it to care for those around them, they've been oppressing those around them. And God says, I'm going to do something about that. They failed. But secondly, he warns them that they've actually also failed, not just with their wealth, but with their worship. So pick pick it up in verse 4 with me. 
It says, come to Bethel and rebel. Rebel even more at Gilgal. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tents every three days. Offer leavened bread as a thanksgiving sacrifice. And loudly proclaim your freewill offerings, for that is what you Israelites love to do. This is a strange verse, isn't it? He's encouraging them to come to Bethel and Gilgal, the two key worship sites, and rebel. Now, Amos is being ironic here, isn't he? It can be hard to pick up sometimes. But I think Amos is actually quite a, uh, a, a witty guy. He has, he has this thick sense of irony through the letter that we're going to kind of pick up on at different points. And, and, and what he's saying is, is that you Israelites, you come before God to worship him, but God doesn't accept their worship. See, the Israelites, they follow all the proper rules. They keep the sacrifices. They give their tithe a tenth every kind of week. They offer leavened bread. They do all the right stuff, but it's all just for show. It's shallow. There's no heart to it. It's just kind of a bunch of rules. They, they turn up, and they go through the motions. In fact, he makes a big deal of the point that the only thing that gets them a bit excited is the free will offering. Now, a free will offering was kind of a, you could just do it, you didn't have to do it for any particular purpose, but you could just bring something to God at any point uh, out of your own free will and, and give it to him as a form of sacrifice for his praise, for his honor, uh, for, to thank him, basically. Uh, and, and he says, well, you Israelites, you love to do that. But notice what he picks up on, that they loudly proclaim it. See, what he's saying here is that you're doing it as a public spectacle, you're doing it so that everyone around will see, look how good they look, proclaiming, oh, I don't have to do this, but look at me, bringing a sacrifice to God. They're doing it for the praise of those around them. And not only that, but the free will offering, how it worked was, it was often a goat, but it could be other things as well, but you would bring it, sacrifice it, cook it, and then you kind of sat down and ate it, and the idea was that you would be eating a meal with God. You're kind of sharing, communing with God through the sacrifice. See, that's the only thing that actually gets the Israelites excited is some tasty goat meat. <laughs> that's, that's what gets them excited. It's not about God. It's not about coming to him to be changed by him in their hearts. They just want to look good to others and enjoy a tasty meal. And, Israel says, and Amos says to them that their worship fails to please God. It's shallow and empty. It's driven by a selfish desire, not by a desire to actually come before God. They haven't been changed by their worship. He's warned them time and time again that what he's, not, he's not after just sacrifices, but after a changed heart, lives that are to live for him. And they failed to listen to God with the way they worshipped. And now the third one they failed in was they failed to hear God's warning and listen to him with their woe. See, I think... As we reflect on this today, we can be just like Israel here and have quite a small view of God. I don't know where you're at with God, or you might be here checking out Christianity for the first time and have thought all different things about God and picked them up from different places. But I think culturally we have a small view of God where we think God can do good stuff for us, but he's never going to do anything that we think is bad. We view God a little bit like a genie. You, know, you rub the lamp and he comes out and you, you give him a shopping list of the prayers that you'd like him to answer and then kind of wait expectantly for him to answer them. But Israel have a false perception of God here. They think that he's just going to be out for their good and to bless them, but he's never going to actually judge them or hold them to account for what they do. See, what we see in verses 6 to 11, though, is God uses the events of their lives and their, their world to... Uh, discipline them. 
they, and, and, and time and time again, what they do is they fail to hear the discipline and they fail to repent. See, look, look at verse 6. Says, Amos says, I gave you absolutely nothing to eat in all your cities, a shortage of food in all your communities, yet you did not return to me. This is the Lord's declaration. See, what Amos is saying here is that God's act of holding back food is actually an act of grace. It was designed so that Israel would realize that they hadn't been listening to God and that they would repent, that they would kind of do a U-turn in their life and start listening to God. Um, that they would apologize to God for rejecting him, for ignoring him, and come back to him in trust. But he does it time and time again, and yet they still refuse to listen. Verse 7 and 8, he withholds the rain, yet they did not return to me. Verse 9, God destroyed their crops, and yet they did not return to me. Verse 10, he sent plagues and even death, yet they did not return to me. Verse 11, he overthrew some of them, and yet they did not return to me. Do you see how the message of Amos 6 to 11 is that in the midst of their woe, God was at work in their lives to bring them back to himself as his people, and yet they do not return to him. They don't listen to the warnings. They don't listen to his grace, to the prophets that he sends, to continually tell them to come back before it's too late. They failed. They failed to listen to God with their wealth, in their worship, and even in their woe. And we read this account of Israel's failure in Amos chapter 4, and I think it made me ask two questions. I wonder if it made you ask any questions. The first one is, how could they miss all the warnings? What were Israel thinking? They had all these different things that happened in their lives. They had the prophets telling them what God wanted. They had the law. They had everything that they could need from God. And they just kept missing it. What were they doing? And I think we want to come back to that question. We'll, we'll cover that in a little bit. Because I think sometimes we can be just like Israel. We can uh, refuse to see what God's doing in the world and so miss his warnings. But the second question that I want to tackle first is, does God still act in the world like this today? Is he still using the circumstances of our lives today to, to show us things about ourselves, about him, about the world that we live in? What does it look like? How, how does God do that? And that's really where I want to spend the majority of our time here tonight. I want to take us to three places in the New Testament that will show us what does it mean for God to warn us today? What's he doing in the world, in your life today? So second point, God's warnings. Firstly, I want to show us that we need to correctly understand the relationship between suffering and tragedy in our lives and sin or rejecting and ignoring God. And what the Bible is clear on is that there is not a one-to-one -one correlation between sin and suffering. The, the whole book of Job is designed to show us that even, even for those who are righteous, a man like Job, suffering still happens. The world is broken. Come across with me to Luke chapter 13. Have you flipped across there in the Bible? We're going to flip to a few different places. You might want to leave a finger in Amos 4. Luke chapter 13. Uh, in its context, Jesus has been teaching a large crowd. He's like gathered them and he's teaching them from the Bible. And some people come up to him and they want to ask him some questions about two tragic events that have happened in Jerusalem recently. And, and here's what Luke records. Luke 13, verse 1. 
At that time, some people came and reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And he responded to them, Do you think these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that, that the Tower of Siloam fell on and killed. Do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who lived in Jerusalem? No. But I tell you, unless you repent, you will all perish as well. So these two tragedies have occurred. One's a a human who's done a terrible act of evil. Pilate's gone into the Jewish temple and killed a bunch of people. A terrible, tragic act of mass murder. And the second one is a a tragedy of a natural occurrence. This tower that was built fell over. A bunch of people died. And they want to see what Jesus has to say on the matter. In both answers, Jesus gives them the same two truths. First, their suffering didn't occur because they were more sinful or more deserving of it than others. He makes it very clear. Were they more sinful than all the others? No, he says it twice. See, we live in a broken world full of tragedy and death and evil. And Jesus makes it clear here that just when a tragic thing happens in someone's life or when suffering occurs, it doesn't mean that God's necessarily judging that person. Humans do sinful, awful things to each other. We just live in a a broken world where... Natural disasters occur. Jesus isn't saying here that, yes, they deserved it. He says the exact opposite. He says, no, they weren't any more sinful than any other person. See, if we look at the story of Amos 4 and we read it wrongly, we might think to start thinking about our own lives and every tragedy that occurs and think, well, what did they do wrong? What sin did they do? When suffering happens in my own life, be tempted to go, Oh, it's because I definitely did something wrong. And there's not a one-to-one correlation here, Jesus is saying. But he does say that these tragic events serve as a reminder that we've all actually rebelled against God and our world is under judgment. So he says that every war, every act of human sinfulness, every murder, every act of depravity, every crime, every pain that happens to humanity... And every wrong thing in our world is designed to show us that this world is broken. That it's a world under curse. And that actually humanity is broken and humanity itself is under curse. And the reality is that the broken world pushes us to see our need for rescue. It pushes us to see our need to turn back from ignoring God and turn to him. And put our trust in him to repent and believe. See, pain and suffering in our world has this way of sometimes speaking to us in a a kind of way that's hard to ignore. Isn't that right? Have you experienced that in your own life? C.S. Lewis, he put it famously like this. He said, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, when we look at the events that happen in our world today... We ought to see them as a reality of the brokenness of the world, and they should therefore point us to see our need for a savior, our need for rescue, our need to be in right relationship with the one who made the world. See, how many floods and earthquakes and COVID pandemics does God need to bring onto this world to show us that humanity has rejected him, that we've rebelled against him, that the world is broken. It's clear, isn't it, when you go through a pandemic, that this isn't what things ought to be like. 
This isn't the way the world should be. It's, it's a clear call from God to turn around, to repent, to trust Jesus. That's, that's what God's doing in the midst of those tragedies. And on a personal level, often, uh, like I said with the car at the start, our wealth can bring this sense of self-sufficiency, that we don't need anyone else. And sometimes it's tragedy that occurs in your life that kind of clears the fog so that you can clearly think and clearly see the world and the realities of the world um, and see God a bit more clearly. So God can use those things to show us that the world is broken and that actually our relationship with him is broken and we need rescue. We need to do something about that. That's the first thing. There's not a direct link between sin and suffering, but God does use the suffering in the world to show us our need for rescue. Secondly, we need to understand the link between repentance and discipline. See, Amos 4 makes it clear that God's purpose in judging his people was that they would come back to him. And as the book of Amos unfolds, we see that Israel keep refusing to come back to God and that God will actually hold them to account. He'll judge them for that. But even there, he shows grace and chooses to save a people at Amos 9, which we're going to get to in a few weeks, is one of the sweetest verses in the whole of the Old Testament, in the way that it points forward to God's heart to bring up people and rescue them. But I think today, there's a slight difference between how we relate to God and how they did. See, today, we, we know that we relate to God a little bit differently because of what Jesus did on the cross. This is the beating heart of the Christian faith. This is the, the reality that all of the Christian hope is built on, that Jesus willingly died and gave up his life for us in our place. He took our sin on himself, and he gave us his perfect righteousness. And the result is that God poured out his wrath and judgment on Jesus. For every sin that every human has ever committed, for those who will turn and trust in Jesus... Jesus bore those sins on the cross. And so now if our trust is in Jesus, if we've repented and we believe in him as our Lord, then God says, actually, we now no longer stand condemned before him. We no longer are under God's judgment or under God's punishment if Jesus is our king. Because Jesus paid the punishment that we deserved. He took that punishment in its fullness, one sacrifice once and for all, for all of us if we trust Jesus. The debt has been paid. The slate has been wiped clean. If your trust is in Jesus, God's not going to punish you again. Jesus took that punishment for you. For every sinner that will throw themselves on the mercy of God, Jesus takes that in its entirety. That's the heart and the center of the Christian faith. See, God doesn't look down on you with disdain, storing up all the things that you do wrong, waiting to meter out punishment for you. If your trust is in God, he's joyfully accepted you into his family. Jesus paid the punishment. You don't have to anymore. But if your trust is in Jesus, you're part of the family, and it means that actually God relates to you like a father. And what we see in the New Testament is that like any good father, actually God doesn't punish us. Jesus took that, but he does discipline us. He does want us to come back to him, same as how he wanted Israel to come back to him in Amos 4. See, I want to show us this. Come to Hebrews 12. Flick across there. Hebrews 12. We're going to pick it up from verse 7. Give you a second to get there. 
Hebrews 12, verse 7. The author has just pointed us to Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, the one who we have hope and trust for eternity in. And now he says this, picking it up in verse 7. He says, Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. See what he's saying there? the author of Hebrews, that God is our Father and so he deals with us by disciplining us. He, he cares for us and so he wants us to come back to him. See, if, you, if God doesn't discipline you, then you're not actually a child of God. That's the argument there. And the idea of discipline, we need to be clear on what discipline is. Punishment is kind of the, the metering out uh, recompense for the wrong that you've committed. You've done X sin and so X is the punishment for that wrong thing that you've done. But discipline has a completely different purpose. The idea behind discipline is the idea of like training, correcting, encouraging, growing. It's, it's the guiding, instructing. It's that kind of language. In fact, in the New Testament, the word for discipline is the same base word that's used for teacher or instructor. It's the one who helps you grow, the one who helps you learn and, and, and come back to God. See, verse 9, he says, Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and lived? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness. You see, this is an argument of comparison. Human fathers did what they thought was good and just for a short time, but God, who is eternal, who knows all things, who always acts fairly and acts with good towards his people, when he disciplines us, how much better is that than even humans that get it wrong some of the time? They discipline with incomplete knowledge. God disciplines with complete knowledge. And verse 11, no discipline then seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's true, isn't it? Discipline doesn't seem enjoyable at the time. No one really likes discipline. But God uses the circumstances of our lives to bring us back to himself, to help us live rightly with God at the center. Are you aware of that reality? See, when things don't go according to your plan, what do you tend to do? I don't know about you, but for me, I do one of two things. Either I work out how I can get things back to my plan and, and go, well, that's obviously not working, God, what you're doing, and try and get back my plan. Or the other thing I can do in, in, in hardship, in suffering, is just kind of put my head down, kind of think, oh, God, what are you doing in this? I'm just going to try and muscle my way through it. I'm just going to try and get through on my own. We just put our heads down and push through and just try and get through it. But the Bible shows us that God wants, to, God wants us to come back to him and keep him at the center. And he uses the circumstances of our lives to do that. See, in the midst of your troubles, God's not distant from you, but he's actually inviting you back to him. Discipline provides an opportunity for growth, for training, for correcting. Are you willing to take it? It's hard. It's really hard. But Here's one suggestion that I have. In the midst of hard moments in our life, to ask the question, is there something God might be trying to teach me in this moment? Is there something God be, might be trying to teach me? 
Is there something God might be trying to reveal to me where I've got false loves or false idols or I've put something else in the place that I ought to have put God? Is he trying to teach me a lesson about the control that I think I have over my life and a reminder that actually he's the one that's in control? See, God is using the events of your life for your good to bring you back to him. It doesn't mean that things are always going to be easy, though. Romans 8.28 gives us the great promise that we know all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. See, it might not look good to you in the moment. You might not ever understand. You might never get a clear answer from God what he's doing in the circumstances of your lives, but you can trust that he's doing it for your good, to make you more like Jesus, to bring you back to himself, if you'll let him. If you'll take those moments and, and, and turn to God rather than push him away and, 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 and say, I don't want anything to do with you, God. See, God's using discipline in the circumstances of your life to bring you to repent, to bring you back to him. And so ask that question, hey, what's going on in my life right now? It's not the way I would have done it. What's God doing here? Spend some time reflecting when that happens. But thirdly, we need to understand that God uses the trials in our life to refine our faith. See, this is a little bit different to discipline. Discipline is kind of like you're going the wrong way and God's trying to bring you back to himself. But the idea of refining is the idea of uh, increasing intensity or concentration to, to those who are trusting God to deepen that trust. See, that God in his kindness wants to grow our hope, grow our faith, grow our trust in Jesus, and, and he's using circumstances in our lives to do that. See, last, last flick in the New Testament, come across to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, pick it up from verse 5. Peter says, You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, though perishable, is refined by fire. And it may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So do you see what Peter's saying here? That we have this hope of salvation through faith in Jesus, and in this life, as we suffer various trials and, and things of, of grief and hardships, that actually God's refining us through them. That he's using the circumstances of your life to grow your trust in Jesus. To help you to look more clearly towards the hope of eternity that awaits you if your trust is in King Jesus. There's nothing like losing your house. Or, or losing your health, or, or that relationship ending, or being fired from your job, or failing a subject at uni, or any other circumstance that's hard to give you clarity on where eternal hope lies. See, if your hope's in any of those things and you lose them, then you've got nothing left. See, what God's trying to do in us, in our lives, in those hard moments, is actually bring us into a deeper trust of Him. When we don't know why he's acting the way he, he does, but we know he's good, he's inviting us to trust. Every time we're faced with a trial in our lives, uh, we come with two choices. The first, will I let this thing or this event, will I let it pull me away from God? Will I be shown to be someone that doesn't have their trust and hope in Jesus, but in something in this world? 
And, and so when it's taken away, it actually pulls me away from God and makes me resent him and turns me away from him. Or will I lean into God and his goodness even in the midst of suffering and trial? Will I let him use this experience, one which I never would have chosen and one which I wouldn't necessarily wish on anyone else, but will I let him use that in my life to deepen my trust in Jesus? Will I come out of this experience with a deeper, sharper, clearer hope than what I had before? Um, I've got some dear Christian friends, some of my closest friends, and uh, a little bit over a year ago, uh, they were pregnant and their baby was due, and and they found out that the baby had a heart condition. And he came into the world, little Levi, and he lived for two days. And then he passed away. And it was just the most tragic circumstance that I think I've ever been through. Sophie and I have had miscarriages and other things that happened to us, but this was just so real and raw and tragic and left us with all the questions of what is God doing in the midst of this suffering? What's he doing? And those friends, as they've grieved, and they're still grieving even now, and, and they will grieve for the rest of their lives, I've seen God do a miracle in them. I've seen them come with a, a sharpness of, of hope in Jesus and the comfort that he brings, even in the midst of suffering. I've seen them speak about the way that God has been a comfort and a hope and a, and a father to them in that suffering. And, and I look at their lives, and I think I would never have wished that on anyone But in the midst of it, God refined their faith. We don't know why he chose to do that, and we don't know exactly what he's doing in the world, and we might never know, but God used that event in their life to refine them and bring them to a deeper trust in Jesus. I don't know what it is in your life, but I'm sure for most of us, we've experienced suffering. The loss of friends or family members, cancer, people that have lost their belongings, And I know people that are in each of those categories who trust Jesus, who have chosen to lean in and trust the goodness of God, trust his heart and his character for them, even in the midst of suffering. There's there's among us those that have lost even in just recent weeks. And God wants to use those moments in our lives to refine us. If you haven't experienced any kind of suffering yet, Can I encourage you? You need to be clear on what God is doing now so that when suffering does come in your life, you can turn to him and be refined and and grow in your trust of Jesus. Don't let those things catch you unawares in your life. The the hymn writer William Cowper, a man who was plagued with depression and and lost a lot of his children in a tragic accident, he he wrote these words. I'm going to come from the screen. He said, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. God wants us to hear that truth this morning, that he is for us and he is good, even in hard moments. Can I encourage you, here's one way that we can live this out in community, as a church. When we pray for each other, let's be aware that God is using the circumstances of our lives to grow us, 
to shape us and to refine us and sometimes even to discipline us. So when we pray for each other in, in illness or sickness or, or tragedy in these, the hard, tough moments of life, yes, we need to pray that God might heal, that God might comfort. He works miracles and he is our comfort. But more than that, we ought pray that God would use the events of the lives of the people that we care about to bring about his good purposes in their life. That he would use it for their good and their glory. That he would use it to refine their trust. That, he would not, that that event wouldn't be wasted, but that actually God would use it to grow that person, to trust Jesus more. And, and sometimes he might use those events that seem really hard to, to actually discipline us and to show us areas of our lives where we need to come back to Jesus and put our hope in him again. God can is at work in the world today. And he's using the events and the circumstances of our lives sometimes to show us the reality of a broken world under sin and help us long for eternity. Sometimes to discipline us and, and to bring us to repentance and sometimes to refine us, to grow our trust in Jesus. And, and he does all that. And, and we can't know why he's doing it sometimes. We don't get clear answers But his purposes are bigger than what we could imagine. His thoughts are not like our thoughts. His ways are not like our ways. And that's exactly where Amos closes, with a view that helps us want to see a bigger picture of who God is. So flick back to Amos chapter 4 with me. We're going to finish up here a couple minutes. Amos chapter 4. This is the final point. The Lord, the God of armies. See, God wants to remind Israel who he is, whose warnings they have failed to listen to. Pick it up with me in verse 12. He says, Israel, this is what I will do to you, and since I will do that to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He is here, the one who forms the mountains, creates the wind, and reveals his thoughts to man, the one who makes the dawn out of the darkness and strides on the heights of the earth. The Lord, the God of armies, is his name. God shows them who he is. He's the creator. He formed the mountains. He creates the winds. He makes the dawn out of the darkness. He's so much bigger than us. He's so other. We're creatures. He's the creator. And so the warning is, don't fail to listen to that one. When you see clearly who he is as creator, don't fail to, hear, to listen to his warnings. See, he's not some God that you can go to when you feel like it and worship him on your terms and how you want to. He's the God of the universe. He made you. He's the creator. And more than that, he's the revealer. See, he says he reveals his thoughts to man. Israel ought to have known better. God has revealed himself to them in the law, in the prophets. Time and time again, he's warned them. A time is coming after this very shortly when God will go silent for 400 years. But now, in this period in Israel's history, God continues to warn them. And even when they go into exile, when Judah go into exile with the Babylonians that capture them, he continues to warn them out of love and mercy to come back to him time and time again. God has revealed himself to us. We've got his word. We've got Jesus. God come down in flesh. The word became known among us. That's what we're going to celebrate at Christmas in a few weeks' time. The word with us. We, we know God's love and glory and power and majesty because he has revealed it to us. And so can I just encourage you, time with God is never wasted. 
God is the revealer of his thoughts. He's made known his mission to you. You can open up his word and get to know him and his heart and his character. And every time you open up the word, you meet the God of the universe. The one whose word was the creative power to make things at the start is the one whose word you open. And his creative power is at work in your heart by his spirit to change you and grow you every time you meet with him in his word. He's the creator, he's the revealer, but he's also the ruler. You get the sense of God's power here, don't you? He strides on the heights of the earth. I was trying to think, like, has anyone seen the, the, the big friendly giant? You know how the giant, has anyone, I don't know if you guys have seen that. Maybe I'm just showing my age. But you, you can picture God striding across, stepping from mountain to mountain. This is the Lord, the God of armies. No one can stand against this one. He alone deserves the glory and the praise. And so can I encourage you, God's given us this warning in Amos 4, and he wants us to hear it. He's given us the rest of his word so that we might know him and come back to him. He, he wants us to be more aware of his power and as the creator, the responsibility that we have to listen to him. He wants us to think deeply about his plans for the world and to respond rightly to him by coming back by repenting, by putting our trust in him. Where, where's that area for you where you have been failing to listen to God? Tonight's the night to come back, to repent, to put your trust in him again. God uses the circumstances of your life to bring you to a deeper trust in King Jesus, if you'll let him. He's warning you, disciplining you, and refining you for his glory, for our good, for the praise and the fame of Jesus. Let's pray that we might listen to those warnings and, and invite God in to work in our hearts and shape and grow us. Yeah? Father God, we're so thankful for who you are. You are the creator, the revealer. You are the Lord of all the armies. Father God, we're so thankful for your warnings. We're thankful that you do work in the world today. We're thankful that you're not distant and unaffected by our lives but actually that you want us to be refined and grow our trust in you as we face hard circumstances, that you even are using the circumstances of our lives to discipline us and to bring us back to you. We pray that you might help us to see those areas where we need to come back and to repent and to return to you, Lord God. We're so thankful for Jesus, the one who took the punishment that we deserved for when we failed to repent. We're thankful that our hope is in him, our trust is in him. We look forward to the salvation and eternity that he has won for us on the cross. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.